Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Maddie, And I'm Nico, and we hope you guys survive this experience, and the experience we have for you today is an experience unlike any other. Well, okay, it might be slightly like another experience you've had, but we're taking things a little bit differently today. Welcome back to X's for Podcast, and today we have one of our favorite new contributors, on board for some classic X-Men. And to set the stage and bring Maddie in right, we're going to take a step back and we're going to take a look not just at New Mutants 15 through 17, the arc in which the Hellions finally make their triumphant introduction, but we're going to take a look at the context of Secret Wars as it relates to this story. Now, there's nowhere to start, but where we left things off, Jonah, we have been at this forever, chasing the X-Men. I mean, like, seriously, we are some several hundred issues in, and here we are, standing at the gaping maw abyss that is the Secret Wars. Gaping is a great term to use here. Abyss, despair, you know, kind of like nothingness. Because truly, and I don't want to discredit anybody's art, and I feel like I have to say that almost every episode for a comic or an issue that I don't like, and in context of what we're even looking for, which is how this affected the X-Men, uh, you can be grasping at straws to even try to make an argument that this had any effect on the X-Men. Well, and it's to that end that instead of covering the Secret Wars as 12 issues and some unfathomable 350 pages, we're going to be taking a look at what I'm calling the Super Secret Wars Super Short Annual Supercut. Now, this is going to be really just like 50 pages that directly affect the X-Men. Maddie, I know Jonah and I have both read The Secret Wars in its entirety. We've read some miniseries that tie in, like the Spider-Man and the Secret Wars miniseries from 30 years later, referencing the events. What is your experience with classic Secret Wars? Did I lead you blindly into a dark cave here? Or are you like a zoo bat and you're kind of okay? Well, I, t I tell you what, Sonic Screech always helps as a zoo bat. No, I I definitely felt not dragged along. I felt I felt handheld along with the 50-page supercut that we have here, which I cannot recommend enough if anybody has any interest in Secret Wars, but not enough to particularly read it. My comic experience didn't particularly start until really two years later, as far as uh, major back material. It wasn't until the Renaissance of uh, 1986 that I really started to cut my teeth into anything particularly current and chronological X-Men canon. So this was my first time reading through, and wow, this was a year 
in the books, but now in the airing order, Nico, you would probably know this. Uh, how long did Secret Wars span real time? So the fascinating thing about Secret Wars is it was designed to help promote a toy line that was going to be released internationally. The events of Secret Wars occur, like for many books, between the pages of issues. So the X-Men disappear at the end of Uncanny 180. They return the next month in Uncanny 181. However, although 181 is a terrific spotlight on everybody favorite dragon Lockheed. However, the events of Secret Wars played out over the course of 12 months. So you spent a year slowly finding out what was revealed essentially the next page. Unbelievable. It, it as to, to mix metaphors here, it reminded me a lot of original Dragon Ball Z. I don't know if anybody here is an anime fan like any of the Cell Saga or any battle with Frieza just just powering up and leveling up and and minor changes for you know six episodes it uh it and even with the supercut even bouncing around it's disastrously slow I mean there's stuff that I love like I love Titania and I super duper love how hot the absorbing man is so like I could look at him all day but one of the things that is kind of like the driving force behind Secret Wars is it's a story of gods among men. The Beyonder actually is a god beyond man. The story of Galactus is one of a god who is a man that can't believe he could be felled. And the story of Doom, who is a man that would want to become a god. Ultimately, there is nothing that has to do with the fucking X-Men here. They go off on their own a number of times. But there is one major, major contribution to X-Canon, and one significant minor contribution to X-Canon. The setup for Secret Wars involves Kitty Pride being left behind, and in this time, she goes to the Massachusetts Academy, along with some of the other new mutants in an adventure involving the Hellions, which we're going to cover later this episode. However, the rest of the X-Men found themselves transported to Battleworld. It's on Battleworld where Colossus gets into a terrible fight and he's injured horribly and he's healed by the amazing Zaji. And then she runs off and starts making it with the Human Torch and Colossus goes sad boy and then Zaji dies and... Yeah, this is this is literally the events of an annual that were drawn out that were drawn out over the course of a year. Jonah, I tried to protect you from this as long as I could. Uh, try as you may, that it's impossible. A lot of what the X Men do in this book are kind of reminiscent of what they do in their earlier runs, which is hide and wait for the opportunity to just join the winning team like they don't really do much they stay out of a lot of the conflicts because they kind of just don't want to participate which i get they're just trying to survive but i i don't i'm not even sure and to bounce off of something that you said maddie that you didn't know how long this took I also didn't know when the first time I was reading this that this was supposed to span over a year, but it doesn't feel, if you read the entirety, like it's a year. It feels like everything just happens one after another in a span of like three days. So I had no idea that that was actually a year. It's great to know that I'm not the only person who's left without a decent understanding of the timeline here and especially with the required reading for uh, later which was New Mutants 15 to 17 which pretty much covered the events of Kitty during the absence of the X-Men in Secret Wars I I really had a hard time uh, 
you know, traveling through this and understanding its impact. And, and really, I think part of that is, as one of you had mentioned, the complete lack of utility of the X-Men. They, they seem to be there just to seclude themselves and be called out for it and then run off on their own adventures. I want to talk for a moment about the X-Men and their utility. Something that does not miss my notice is that two of the X-Men's main figures in Secret Wars both play sexual romantic roles, both Magneto and his love story with the Wasp, which bizarre to say the least, and Colossus. Both of them are in many ways kind of like a sexual journey that goes outside of the scope of the story. The X-Men were really off limits for significant ramification. Chris Claremont was, of course, very protective of his characters. And beyond that, what can you do to Wolverine in Secret Wars that's not going to cheapen it over in X-Men? It's one thing to see how the Hulk broke his leg. It's one thing to see how She-Hulk joined the Fantastic Four. But Chris Claremont's artistry is in his evolution of character and in his depiction of significant moments. And I think that's partially why the Colossus moment feels so hollow. We've already had Baby's First Threesome, although canonically, I don't think Baby's First Threesome happened yet. So to explain Baby's First Threesome, Maddie, you know, the show has evolved so much when Jonah and I started it. It was not three Latinos talking about X-Men, but sure is now. <laughs> Colossus has had a number of stories that are basically women throwing themselves at his luscious, muscled sexual body. And there really is a backup story that takes place in the Savage Land where two women basically reward Colossus with their bodies. I just wish there had been a woman involved in the creation of the story. Okay. Colossus could have been asexual. Colossus could have been, you know, sexually stunted, and that can be a conversation. And lead to some interesting character growth in what does that mean for him? What does that mean for how people are reacting to him? How does he express it? But, like, it just comes off as this awkward, like, it's person that everybody is sexualizing, but he doesn't know how to say no to be sexualized, so he's just kind of like, oh, actually, I'm kind of into it. Or, however, say that in Russian. And it's just, I, I'm Sex me it. da. Sex me da. I'm just kind of over it because I don't think it's interesting. How many times are you going to write the same story where women throw themselves at Colossus and he has no idea how to handle it? I think through that lens, it really helps to unpack a little bit of what's so unfortunate about Colossus's emotional affair in Secret Wars, which is he, he doesn't understand why he can't picture Kitty and he can only picture Zazie. It, it's... Maybe it is that he's a little bit emotionally stunted and maybe is not in any capacity available for love. And then, you know, this is grasping at straws. This is really trying to pull out a lot more characterization he was offered in these pages. But, you know, to, to look at it that way, that's a little tragic. No, not, I mean, I still don't feel bad because he is being rewarded sex constantly for being a sad boy, which is problematic and toxic. But hey, you know, somebody's dream. I mean, that was the definition of the 2006 emo community. But I think we're actually really stumbling onto something here. If we contextualize Colossus's predominant relationships, they are Kitty, 
a 14-year-old girl, essentially, his underage lover, his younger sister, who was a six-year-old until she was Kitty's age, and now she's his closest confidant. Logan, who serves an older brother avuncular fatherly role. Storm, who serves a motherly role. Kurt, who is an equal child. There is something so inherently stunted about Colossus. He is forever that 17-year-old senior in high school in the third season of the dramedy, and he's getting scouted by all the hockey scouts, and they're just, like, throwing tang at him, and they're just like, boobies and coke, and he's just like, I mean, I guess I can boobies and coke, and he's sort of, like, stuck there forever until he's made bitter by it, and that's a really fascinating tracking of the white masculine identity through the lens of superheroics across the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He goes from this sense of sexual over-empowerment to this fruitless impotence at his own rage. And I think that transformation is both incredibly true of Colossus's unending narrative and Russia. I think that's all there is to be said about that. And I mean, think about how Colossus behaves outside of the context of Zaji. He focuses on Kitty far too much. He's like, I wonder what Katja's doing. I wonder what Katja's doing. Do you have an identity unto yourself? God, you're so busy picking up tractors, you're forgetting to pick up traits. And you're also in the middle of a surprise space showdown? So maybe there's a little bit more to be concerned about than, as aforementioned, your underage girlfriend who is in the middle of some some major shit right now herself. Like, she's she is clearly not thinking about you. She's thinking about the X-Men at this moment and, and immediately. And I don't think there is one mention of Colossus. Uh, we're talking about the X-Men, and at this point in the X-Men, there's a, there's, a, there's a handful of members who are staples to the team, but, like... We only really talked about Colossus, and to a lesser extent, Magneto was there, and he kissed Janet a little bit, until she was like, now just playing you, do you really think I would actually get with you? And that's like, that's not cool, Janet. I'm too busy trying to fuck the lizard. Oh my god. I think there's, to grasp at the low-hanging fruit, I think the parallels between Magneto and Colossus, despite one being able to control the element that the other is made of both being the central leads here is fascinating then because it seems that magneto cannot control his love interest and colossus cannot control himself i think that has to do with the agency of the character zaji was created and i mean i she was created as a condom like she is literally meant to be worn by a man's sexuality to prove his power without severe repercussion she's contained within this mini series she has no agency or identity unto herself whereas janet is an avenger she's the one who named the avengers she's been there since day one she wasn't just a founding avenger she was the only woman for some time so yeah there is a lot to be said about the fact that there's a balance of control along a polarity has (laughs) so from Secret Wars 1 through 12 by Jim Shooter featuring artwork by Mike Zeck and Bob Layton to a 
much shorter but somehow more fulfilling story in the pages of New Mutants 15 through 17 by Chris Claremont and Sal Buscema. This is, of course, the end of Sal Buscema's tremendous run on the title. The book had been introduced by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud over in the pages of Marvel Graphic Novel Number 1 and a handful of issues of the title before Sal Buscema, the Marvel legend that he is, stepped in and covered some work. He would then also go on to work on the Magic, Ileana, and Storm miniseries that came to help define Ileana as a member of the team. Here, he finishes out his story by helping to introduce some of the most significant characters to the New Mutants lineup in the form of the Hellions. Of course, that first page has a couple of really great cameos, and my favorite is Tom Selk. You know, the giant green Garfield that takes up a third of the page completely distracted me from Tom Selleck. I'm seeing Tom Selleck now for the first time. What about that Five Nights at Freddy's pre-Frankensteining on the fucking rocking chair? I really hope that one of her spirit demon familiars inhabits it from time to time and just kind of like makes it dance around uncomfortably. If I could start by saying that I had never read New Mutants until this point, this was actually my jumping in point. Uh, when I had begun reading comics issue to issue from the pages of Nunzio and Weir's New X-Men Academy X, and so I was so familiar with the archetypes, and I of course now have some vague understanding of the lineup of New Mutants. I have become re-familiar with them through the pages of Dawn of X, but so there was something so comforting about sliding into a story like this, such a neat jumping on point with a number of anchors, Emma Frost, Kitty Pride, the events of Secret Wars, although I had not read it, I was somewhat aware of the events by this point. So yeah, definitely thought that it was a really progressive book for the time. Jonah, when we started this shindig, you were the newbie, and now you have a year and a half, almost two years of podcasting the X-Men, plus all of the time we've spent covering it. For you, these aren't the new mutants. These new mutants are the old mutes. And from that weird furry green penis on the front, I have no idea what the fuck that thing is in the bottom right-hand corner. One, one of them is absolutely a furry faced dildo. What is that, Jonah? I... Furby. <laughs> Okay, you know what? She can time travel. So she might have gone to an alternate future and gotten a horrifying Furby. We'll call him Fright Furby. I think, isn't that an oxymoron? Because aren't all Furbies frightening? Tawelo Coco, Jonah. Tawelo Coco. The ones that stay alive in people's closets for 20 years are the scariest Furbies. Ah, so that's, they're the higher level Furbies. (laughs) My Furby still works. That's horrifying. I am... I am I am in a house with an active Furby right now. My Furby has actually ascended. Uh, no. No. Yeah, it's actually trying to form a gray Giga Goo. Uh, and it's trying to pull together all the Giga Pets. Just because Garfield is on this page, does anybody subscribe to the subreddit? I'm actually, sorry. I was just about thinking posting it there later. <laughs> you, you are my hero. I'm sorry, John, for anyone who doesn't know, is all posts of fan arts or fan fix. It's really like three to one art to fic of demonoid Garfields consuming, having consumed, or are about to consume John or drive him madness. And sometimes they take the form of the comic and sometimes they look like beautiful Renaissance art. Um, It really is a mixed bag of joy and despair. I think one of the things that makes this arc so fascinating for me is it's kind of like, I'm sorry, X-Men, because this is... 
the New Mutants book, right? Like, I'm double-checking. This is the New Mutants book. It says New Mutants on the front Cikovzi. It is 1,000% the New Mutants book. But at this point, Ileana is barely a New Mutant if she is at all. Kitty is not a New Mutant. And while the bulk of the story does focus on the core team we've come to know, Sam, Birdo, Rain, Amara, Danny, it has so much about it that feels kind of distant and removed, especially because we get this whole new batch of kids. I wonder if the Hellions were introduced here because they were like, uh, you might be able to believe that these are the new X-Men or something. I don't know. Like, I can't for the life of me figure out why Claremont said the best way to introduce a bunch of new characters is to do it when there's already like six guest stars. I actually think with my secondhand knowledge of where this comes in the run for New Mutants. I think this was a really interesting and and not at all in a bad way time to introduce Hellions because I think that it introduced a sense of camaraderie for the specific age range of mutants, uh, particularly uh, towards the end of the run that we're going to talk about when, when the Hellions and New Mutants um, kind of work alongside one another. Uh, and then for it to completely get an entirely new art style when Bilson Kevich joins the book in 18 for Demon Hunt. I think it's, it's really fascinating to introduce a whole new sect of characters. Kind of restart. It's kind of like Parks and Rec season two ending by introducing Chris Traeger and Ben Wyatt. This was the master plan. This was the master plan all along. And, you know, Jonah, one of the things that I find really pervasive throughout this issue 15 is it's a lot about consequences of things that have already happened. We see Kitty Pride in the clutches of Emma Frost, who wants to get her hands on Kitty because of the events of the Dark Phoenix Saga, as well as the events of 151 and 152, the issues in which Storm and Emma body swapped. That was horrifying and uncomfortable. So she's looking to get revenge on Kitty Pride. She's also already kidnapped Doug Ramsey in a matter of speaking. Doug believes he's been accepted to this school, but you know, nah, he's a prisoner, yo. Now we see Ileana's dark magic and her dark form come out. We see references to how everything's been kind of off since the Cloak and Dagger adventure several months earlier. And we're still recovering from losing karma. We're still recovering from gaining magma. If we go by Maddie's interpretation of as a new reader, this feels kind of like a season finale that introduces a bunch of new characters. What are your thoughts looking back from this point on where the book began? Oh, I, I had to just mention something real fast. I really wasn't expecting them to bring up Cloak and Dagger. I understand it makes sense because the, the New Mutants did actually appear in Marvel Team-Up Annual Number 6. But it was so bizarre because Cloak and Dagger are two characters that are... Are they mutants? How do they get their powers? I don't know. They're just drugs, drugs. teens that drugs. Drug are they are they mutants? It doesn't matter. They're homeless. How do they get their powers? Drugs. They're a, they're a PSA. They're a superhero PSA. These characters deserved so much better than they got. Oh my god, I'm so happy that Cloak and Dagger have personality. Oh, oh, more so than when I called them edge lords. <laughs> You, you, you. They have moved you well past. Yeah, I lost. You lost shit. your shit when I called them edge lords. Well, they, they were. were anyway. It's okay. Thinking, looking at it in the lens of these three issues being a season finale before kind of a reimagining of what the team is supposed to be. I actually find it fascinating that this entire story, these entire this entire arc focuses very heavily on Ileana and Kitty 
because those are already pre-established characters. These are the characters that everybody's already comfortable with because we see them in X-Men, and now we see them here in New Mutants, and now they're kind of getting the limelight over these new characters who we're supposed to be trying to fall in love with. And I've got to say, outside of Danny, the other three kind of get the short end of the stick. Well, I think that I think that Sam's unbelievable insecurity in this arc really helped to highlight Magma in a way that I, I think that she was I think that she was well utilized in these three issues. But especially knowing that she is a new addition to the team, it was really through Sam's mental narration of how inferior he feels in his own advancements, um, and compared to Magma's proficiencies that really highlighted how beneficial she was for the team, but also a fascinating time to split the team up as we see uh, in issue 16 into into little duos. I, I don't know per se that we've we've seen a lot of interactions from these characters before. As I said, 15 was my first time reading any of New Mutants Volume 1. We do see team-ups of Birdo and Rain, Ileana and Danny, and Sam and Amara. Sam and Amara, clearly haven't had much time together we also do see a really fantastic conversation between sam and rain that i'd like to touch on in a moment but if this is really season finale vibes way to give everybody their own little arc pull it together in the end a couple of new introductions i still stand by i think that this was this was a really maybe it was for my own personal nostalgia seeing all of the roles filled between the new mutants and the hellions that i had expected going into this uh seeing all of the duality but i think that this was a really neat way to wrap up the events that i don't know about i don't think i actually i clearly clearly love this arc between iliana danny and emma being the shining stars that they are and the breakouts of what i believe to be these issues are i just feel like there's so much packed into this. I needed a little more from Birdo. I feel like Birdo didn't really speak too much or really, didn't really, there was nothing really added for Birdo's story. And I need a little more from Rain. Amara still, I'm still on the fence about her. I don't think she's bad, but she's super powerful compared to the other new mutants. So I'm, I have a hard time seeing how exactly she fits in if she's so overpowered mutant-wise. She's kind of underdeveloped a little bit character-wise. I'm just... I'm looking for good characterization on top of the other wonderful elements that we do have. The juxtaposition of the Hellions, the Massachusetts Academy. Um, You touched on one pairing that I, I, I want to, with all my fiber and being, dedicate at least 10 episodes to of Danny and Ileana. Because, oh my god, oh my god, I, I, I can't, my heart, my heart flutters at the support that these two want to give each other and this bond that I see forming. I, like, I, I just want to scream. And I think something really interesting is Maddie's like, okay, this felt like a great split across the board. And Jonah, you're like, I feel shortchanged on certain characters. And I think that might be reflective of Maddie coming in. You know, you're coming in as this is your premiere on this. So for you, they feel evenly spread. But Joan has been following certain characters a little bit longer. So they're feeling shortchanged. I think... Finding a way to have two alpha females coexist in a single space like Danny and Ileana takes a deft hand and 
for Claremont to so nimbly get that right, it's sort of bothersome that he gets that exactly right, and other than Cat's Eye is like, I lick myself. None of the Hellions have personality. They're all vaguely, they're like shades of irritated with each other. I was just going to say, I know we're not supposed to like him, but I love Empath. <laughs> I'm not supposed to. As three Latinos, we're allowed to. Now I want you to beg for my forgiveness. Um, Okay, that's enough. That's enough. A little much, but I I do personally love Manuel Alfonso Rodrigo de la Rocha. He is, he is, you killed my father. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there's something that is like the, he's everybody's youngest cousin, I think. I think we all have an empath cousin, for real. And he's just awful. And I think, you know, Maddie, you touched on something really great. You said that there's that beautiful moment between Danny and, no, between Sam and Rain. And that moment, I think, really highlights the difference between the New Mutants and the Hellions. The Hellions are all at each other's throats and pulling tricks on each other, but the New Mutants support each other. You know, I and I think it's because, like Jonah said, the support that Danny and Ileana want to give one another, the support that Sam gives to Rain, uh, the way that Cat's Eye and Rain both help Birdo, just the way that the Hellions, in turn, will help the New Mutants at the end of Seventeen. I think, I think there's something to be said about watching Bond's form, even if it feels like time has been a little bit disparate for a few of the characters on panel or in event. I think that so much of this was humanizing. The way that they need to take bus travel to go save Kitty because none of them have a license and none of them have a car or a chaperone readily available. I think this really was, for me, just a book about a couple of late teens really helping each other through their first crisis as their first human crisis as superheroes. But to touch back on the conversation with Sam and Rain. Did anybody else feel that for 1984, this was a really progressive and coded, religiously endorsed pro-gay metaphor? We've long said that Chris Claremont had always the best of intentions, while there are times the writing has aged problematically and other instances where it was outright problematic at the time. Claremont always put in a strong effort to create an argument for diversity in the earlier issues of New Mutants. There's an outright call for acceptance on homosexuality and religious and ethnic minority. It's been a hot-button topic, and I think it's even kind of reflected in The Hellions, where while Warpath connects back to Thunderbird and is one of the Proudstar family. He represents a Native American much in the same way Danny does. It's representation that matters. And we have Empath and Sunspot who both represent Latinx cultures. It's definitely an element of the New Mutants that is inescapable. This idea of kind of one world harmony. And I'm really glad that somebody saying this is my first issue immediately picks up on a vibe like that. Uh, Everybody else, though, picked up on the 80s jazzercise vibes of the Hellions costumes. As the cis member of the group here, is it okay if I say that the Hellions outfits are just so gay? Yes, yes, it's very okay. They are not even, I mean, time appropriate for sure. No, I I, I need you to know, when when your headmistress wears a lace-up corset and thong set to ethics class, I think, describing your unitard battle wrestle math singlet 
as so gay is just about the nicest thing you can do. But speaking, though, of our famed headmistress, uh, we all talk about how on on page 6 of issue 16, we see that the headmistress has employed uh, female guards, even a, a woman of color. And again, for 1984, I do feel that this is, there's a lot that I'm picking up here that does feel very progressive. So as far as Emma's ethics are concerned, I do think it's uh, it's really nice to see that this at least doesn't fall into the the usual toxic male trap of henching at behest of a woman. I actually really agree. And there's something about the fact that, you know, so Danny's power is she can summon up your greatest fear. And these women's fears aren't a man. They're fucking Emma Frost looking like a demon. Their fears are Emma. Yeah, their fear isn't being attacked by a man. There's actually nothing feminized about that. We frequently see men afraid of their male bosses. So I think the demonization of Emma Frost as their villain actually really supports your point. And if I may then, in issue 17, Danny uses her power again on demons in limbo, and they are most afraid of Sim. However, we find out that Sim has an arrangement now with Ileana where she's basically his hench person that she just oh that's enough now warped away so even when it is that the 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 big male that that it is that the patriarch is the biggest fear and the biggest villain still behind the scenes of that the strongest force is a woman and i think that that's that's whether intentional or not you know good job for claremont however there are some things that i feel maybe haven't aged quite as well like the use of everybody's ethnicity as a singular identity slash slur between the hellions oh that for certain is a deep point of concern oftentimes people say oh no no i used that term to prove a point yeah here it actually gets a little excessive between jetstream empath and thunderbird specifically it is just suddenly a very hateful hateful overtone maddie i don't know if you we fully told you this but we often refer to uh giant size x-men number one as you know mutants of the world where everybody's a different nationality and everyone that's everyone's personality for a bit this is kind of like the part two version of that because all of the men are of different ethnicities as well as tarot being french i i this seems like part two to me okay (laughs) everybody's ethnicity is a personality trait it, it took me a minute to figure out who was French. There's a page in 17 where one of the redhead, they, a redhead on the Hellions turn, turns around and says, Mademoiselle Frost. And I'm like, who, wait, who are you? Which one are you? Um, I think that I think that the Hellions, and it's surprising to see, you know, Thunderbird. It's surprising to see who is stuck around for so long. But Cat's Eye obviously is just a foil for Rain. And Jetstream is just a foil for Cannonball. Uh, it, there seems to be a little bit of a lack of dimension. And maybe if we're going to try and give some credence or credit to that, it would be to further highlight growth and emotional bonding of the news furthering their characterizations, this weird arc at a weird place by giving them a two-dimensional replica squad to beat up on and ultimately persuade into being better. Something we talked about in our upcoming Excalibur episode of This Is X, our coverage of modern X-Men, is that the best way to use an AU is to show them as a parallel to your main character to accentuate and highlight growth. I think Claremont managed to do that really well here, and it's not drawn across such direct parallel lines. Sure, Warpath is ultimately Native American, and in that regard, 
a foil to Danny as a strong Native American character. But at the same time, Warpath in many ways represents a foil to Cannonball, the weight of the world on his shoulders, a belief that his family needs him to do right by them. While Empath is the fiery Latin one, I would say that Birdo never goes quite as too far as Empath goes, and the one of them who certainly goes too far on the regular is Jonah's precious Ileana. And I would say Empath grapples with darkness the way Ileana does. This two-dimensional squad, for as two-dimensional as they are, and I very much agree, they're a squad with a duality to them. Much like their costumes, they have two colors. They have that black and they have that pink. They represent two different facets, a very literal side of one new mutant and a much more kind of nuanced side of another new mutant. I think that helps then, knowing that, to highlight some of the versatility of the emotional exchange that we see in this arc because sam sam really is the crux of the the emotional growth of the arc insecure about himself unsure of himself um but therefore rain rain of course who is grappling with iliana's identity but her own identity birdo despite being incapacitated is still there and seems to be the only person capable of hyping sam on so i i definitely think that there is despite seeing such an even division of the team as far as team-ups go and as far as split time on page we do still see a lot of the interaction between them. Just doing a little bit of research of a where are they now kind of thing with these characters, because, Nico, you can really correct me if I'm wrong, the only characters from the Hellenes that seem to have gotten a lot more out of them have been Warpath and potentially Empath. I'm not sure about everybody else, but just doing a little bit of research, especially just for the girls... They're not really seen. They haven't really been seen for a long time. They're not really referenced. They mostly appear as Hellions. From time to time, they'll appear in conjunction with X-Force or the New Warriors. But the Hellions, with the exception of Warpath, who has a really strong connection to the X-Men via his proud star heritage, ugh, and what a big sexy man he is, and Empath, because he's everybody's favorite disgusting piece of shit, yeah, the Hellions are too busy getting killed off off panel. That being said, I want to touch on something that'll lead to the greater plot of what's going on, and that's the relationship that's been shown between Ileana and Danny. When Ileana saved Danny and had to take her to Limbo, it started this kind of bond, and oh, this, I'm going to sound like such a nerd, but the best way I can describe it, and I guess the best parallel I can think of in modern time right now, is the relationship between Veronica and Betty in Riverdale in that one something kind of really big happened and the bond between them has now been formed and can't be broken? Well, I don't know if it's going to happen between Danny and Ileana. It's that same relationship between two women, two, these two teenage girls who have gone through their own shit, not to spoil anything that does happen, but I think between everybody, Ileana and Danny probably share the most common past of tragic backstories. And it really leads to something special. And there are just some really great moments throughout this entire thing between uh, Ileana finding out that she can now pass through time in that they go a full year ahead and they see that their new mutant friends were kind of broken down by Emma and have joined the Hellions. No X-Men in sight to save them. 
And it isn't until a Ilionic uses all of her powers to be, so it's a week later from their original fight that they're able to reach the new mutants who haven't been turned yet, but they've go through some interesting uh, trials and tribulations to escape. Maddie, you touched on like, and it was so great because you're, you're coming in sight unseen on a lot of these stories and you're reading. And that's kind of the point of the show. The show is always an experienced reader and a fan of the franchise who was looking to know more, but by virtue of the purpose of this program, it just so happens that people become more and more familiar with the characters and it makes sense to kind of cycle around. And so Maddie, you're coming on representing the original idea of this show, people who know, talking with people who are learning more about these characters. And the fact that you pointed out that this feels like a coming-of-age story right off the bat, this idea that we're going to look forward and see the new mutants as different time and time again, that's a huge element of this narrative. So I'm really glad you came in for that starting. Yeah, I, I really am so glad that this was a really good launching point, at least in my opinion. I was a little hesitant when I was talking hey this is issues 15 to 17 and it brings us in right in the middle of the x-men's disappearance and i was like okay i don't know that i'm gonna really have much footing to grab onto here but i'm familiar with worse claremont i'm familiar now by association's characters from from different properties and different appearances throughout years and of course seeing them now currently in the books I definitely got the coming-of-age vibe right away, and again, it really, you know, not by name alone, but the Hellions really helped to anchor it in a place for me. Emma, my my precious trash Emma. Right now she's trash, but that's why I love her, and I will continually love her. We stand Emma. And she still she has does. the Karen Bob. She still definitely has the Karen Bob. You touched Bob. on this, uh, was it Nico, that <laughs> she's a, a dominatrix in white with a bunch of children around her and that's how she's teaching an ethics class i mean how do you not stand but this is where the start of where i think emma is her best is when she has people to teach emma reveals that the reason why she's not letting kitty escape is because she wants to break her down and make her basically a hellion have her under her wing and teach her instead of charles and it's something that emma planned to do if the intervention of danny and iliana didn't happen to the rest of the New Mutants who were trying to go save Kitty. And it's really interesting to see that not only is... It's also referenced that the Hellfire Club is the X-Men's adversary. That's not true. But I do think that the Hellions and this introduction of this new group that Emma has formed, that... She's basically made her own X-Mansion, but it's now an entire fucking school, like an actual campus and school, as opposed to just being a house. The thing about it is that, okay, so like, okay, Sebastian Shaw is the X-Men's nemesis, and Emma's plans are so Emma Frosty, like, she's so Emma Frosty. She's like, she's like a value combo from Wendy's, she's such a Frosty. She has Doug Ramsey come to her school kitty chases doug she takes kitty hostage iliana chases kitty and then the new mutants get taken hostage this is just this is not a great kidnapping plan over and over again and the fact that it stretches out over the course of like six issues is almost baffling to me because ultimately it could have been dispensed in eight pages the actual idea behind this arc is the mirror reflection of who our characters are. 
Kitty Pride goes to Massachusetts Academy to rescue Doug. That's really an eight page story. But by adding layer after layer and element of nuance after element of nuance, you know, it's almost easy to forget Doug is in this story. True, he's shortly to join the New Mutants, and this was a great way to introduce him to readers, but it's almost difficult to think about how this is really a New Mutant story. And it's kind of funny that it runs parallel in some ways with Secret Wars. Secret Wars is a story about something much bigger than him swallowing Colossus and sort of taking him among the stars, and it's that perspective that kind of breaks him. And Kitty is not broken by a torturous, like, hypermundanity. There's two very different hero journeys going on at the same time, where, again, it's that sort of impotent rage that is Colossus. Why can't I have what I want? Whereas Kitty just won't give up. That dynamic duality is really why everyone's always going to want them together, that opposites attract kind of thing. She's strong where he's weak. It's really You Could Be Good For Me by Amy Grant. Is it? Yeah. Okay. When I start to sing the blues, you put on my dancing shoes. I mean, you could be so good for me. You get brave when I get shy. That's just another reason why. I mean, you could be so good for me. You like to drive like Mario Andretti. I like taking my time. Is that, is that an actual lyric, the last one? Yeah. Can anybody have it any better? I mean, isn't it easy to see just how well we fit together? Kyle and I heard that, uh, I guess, like a year ago at a Rite Aid or something at Walgreens, and we and we started singing up and down the that, That's brilliant. I wish he were here for that. <gasps> Me too. He would love it. You know, Kitty and Colossus both go on these incredibly different journeys, but it's a journey that forever defines the nature of their relationship with the X-Men going forward. The events of Secret Wars will ultimately lead Kitty and Colossus to end their relationship, and it's that course of action that eventually has Kitty leave for Excalibur. I mean, way the fuck down the line, but actually, maybe not. Just a handful of years later. It's also a turning point for both characters in that Colossus is now dealing with adult mature things, sex and much more forcibly masculine notions, whereas Kitty is having drama at school. And while I do think the deeper contextual read is that Colossus behaves like a child and Kitty Pride has depth and nuance, I think in a lot of ways, you could take a look at it as, on the surface, Colossus has gone up a level, whereas Kitty is remaining a child. And it's unfortunately going to be that predominant notion colossus is a man now and kitty is still a little girl that's going to define their narrative for quite a while what i find interesting in that in the heat of these moments and these battles that the way kitty reacts to her inner feelings of kind of really being into doug as opposed to colossus kind of really wanting to stick his dick in zargy is really interesting in how these two view their relationship and how serious they thought they were. And I'm just kind of really over it at this point because how long are they going to draw this relationship out? Because truthfully, I'd rather just talk more about Ileana. You know, I think as a as an isolated read, I have the Colossus and Kitty thing backwards. I feel that Colossus grew less from his experience in Secret Wars. He 
acknowledge the need to look inward about his feelings for Jazzy and for Kitty, but that is step zero of a journey. Whereas Kitty had to deal with so much at once, the dynamic between her and Emma being that of opposites, she being outranked in age and class and experience, and also having to look at the mirror of herself in the New Mutants, a class of mutants that are not much younger than she is, and ultimately came out the victor in being the person to facilitate the escape of all parties involved. So I think that Kitty, in this isolated event, grew more, whereas Colossus realized he has growing to do. And man, is he gonna grow hard? It you oh oh no! I almost said I almost said rock hard, but I realized he made of steel. Oh uh, yeah, no steel hard, steel hard, real steel, real steel, real steel, starring Hugh Jackman, Wolverine. That was a thing. It was a thing. It was Rock'em Sock'em Robots the movie with the robots. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, until we return to the hallowed halls of Gray Malkin to take a look at exactly what happens when the X-Men return from their events in Secret Wars, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the kickoff of our new season of X's for Podcast. And, you know, it's been really exciting to have this team, and I'm looking forward to our upcoming schedule. Take a look for some Captain Britain, New Defenders, Dazzler, and more all coming your way in the coming weeks. But until then, Maddie, where can everybody find you online? Well, Everybody can find me here at Cage Club Network as a part of This Is X through X's for Podcast. And if you have an affinity for cats and anti-establishment rhetoric, you can follow me on Instagram at, at the basely covetous man. Hey, Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me in limbo where I will become best friends with Ileana because that's what I am destined to do. Because Tarot has seen it in her cards. Or you can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me on both feeds of this show, Mondays and Thursdays, whether it's This Is X Modern Mondays or it's Throwback Thursdays here on X's for Podcast, covering every aspect of the X-Men comic book franchise. Don't forget to check out Tuesdays and Fridays all summer long as we unveil Force Summer, a part of the HTML Double Sith Summer where we are flying through Clone Wars before we take a look at something fantastic out there. You guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico. Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And guys, as much fun it is to talk about media and franchises, we have to remember the world is an ever-changing place. Everything is evolving around us at all times. It is important to stay aware and in the know. Make sure you are voting. Make sure you are getting out there and being counted. Guys, Black Lives Matter, and we have to be part of the change as allies. And we need to make sure we are supporting our trans brothers and sisters, not just this month in Pride, but always. Guys, thank you as always for spending this hour with us. Keep this Krakoan lights lit. Bye. Goodbye.